What's in a name? The Australia-Indonesia Comprehensive Strategic Partnership. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. With me, Olivia Nelson. In the second episode of our special series, examining the Australia-Indonesia relationship, Dr. David Angle and Dr. Gatra Priandita speak to Dr. Arianto Patanru and Nicola Yormans, two people who were instrumental in the partnership's creation. They explore the economic dimensions of the Australia-Indonesia bilateral relationship, trade barriers, and how to improve government-private partnerships. Hi there. Uh, welcome to another episode in our series on the comprehensive strategic partnership between Australia and Indonesia. In this episode, we will talk about the economic dimensions of the partnership. For long, officials and industry leaders have talked about Indonesia's enormous economic potential for Australia. Yet economic relations between the two countries often pale in comparison to their economic ties with even other countries in the region, like South Korea and Japan. With the two states now comprehensive strategic partners, there is a much stronger impetus to address the many issues that face the economic relationship. But what are the challenges ahead? Joining David and I today are two extremely qualified experts on the economic relationship between Australia and Indonesia. They are both leaders in the field of academia and business, and were instrumental in the creation of the Indonesia-Australia Comprehensive Economic Partnership Agreement, or ISEPA, a major economic framework that aims to bolster economic ties. First, we have Dr. Arianto Patunru, or Paacho is often known, who is a prominent expert on the Indonesian economy. He is currently a fellow at the Australian National University's Arndt Corden Department of Economics, and also a member of the ANU's Indonesia Project, where he coordinates the project's policy engagement activities, and more recently, coordinated the project's research on COVID-19 in Indonesia. And all the way uh, in Singapore, we are also joined by Ms. Nicola Yemens, who is partner and co-head of private capital at King & Wood Mellisons, the biggest global law firm in Asia. She is an expert on private equity and asset management, having advised multiple major companies and organizations engaged with firms across Asia, including Indonesia. Acho and Nicola, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Now, to start the discussion, I'd like to quickly throw some stats your way. Based on the most recent statistics by DFAT, Chewy trade in 2021 is roughly around 15 billion Australian dollars. Investment between the two states stand at nearly 5 billion, uh, with Australia investing 4.2 billion in Indonesia and Indonesia investing around 580 million in Australia. Now, while this might seem impressive, neither country is really in the other in the other's top 10 list of trading partners. Moreover, Indonesia ranks 27th as the destination for Australian foreign investment, whereas Indonesia is the 38th largest source of foreign investment in Australia. This all means that not only is Indonesia not among Australia's top three economic partners in ASEAN, but the economic relationship even lags behind other bilateral economic ties among other neighboring G20 countries like that between Brazil and Argentina, or even Turkey and Russia. Considering that we are significant G20 economies that happen to be neighbors, why isn't the economic relationship a lot stronger? Is it just a question of great familiarity, knowledge, and will? Perhaps we can start with Pacho. Thank you, uh, Pak Gatra. I think the quick answer to that is that because Indonesia and Australia are quite similar, right? Similar in terms of their uh, reliance on natural resources. So basically, uh, they compete more for the same market, most notably China, than to complement each other. So if you look at the export of goods from Indonesia, for example, 30% are actually resources, palm oil, coal, oil and gas, while Australia, more than 50% also resources, coal, iron ore, gas, uh, and gold. So basically, when we look at the trade and investment uh, between the two countries, 
they are mostly uh, relying on natural resources. And if we look at it with the paradigm of looking at trade in goods the old way, like final goods, we cannot really see complementarity because uh, uh, they're more similar, right? So in the future, including uh, ISEPA or later RCEP, what the countries can exploit is the complementarities rather than similarities. And that means we need to go further down the aggregate levels of goods and services. And that we can we can find some uh, complementarities. And that is what uh, trade agreements between the two countries can exploit in terms of, for example, penetrating uh, global value chains. So that's quick reaction to that first question, Pak Gatra. And uh, what do you think, Nicola? Is it is it merely an issue of trade complementarity or lack thereof, I guess, or are there other factors as well? Well, the other factors relate to Australia's relationship with all of Asia, and, and that is Australia's relatively inward-focusing approach to its economy, both in terms of investment and in terms of trade. So I'd say Indonesia's not alone in terms of Australia's trade relationship. If you look at the rest of ASEAN, you know, you look at India and even elsewhere in North Asia, the combinations and the relationships have taken a long time to get to where they are. They are now. So part of the shift that we're seeing now is Australia looking upwards towards Asia in a way we've never seen before. And now is the time for that focus on Indonesia and a recognition that it needs to change and that Indonesia is perhaps number one on the list. And we can talk more about particular policy that we're seeing from this current Australian government to improve that, that relationship both economically and politically with Indonesia. So what I'd add to Pakacho is Australia's sort of inwardness over this past period and the need to look to the region and to build its relationships economically, uh, which I think has added to the issue of that complementarity and almost competition between the two countries for both investment and for exports. Well, that's a perfect lead-in to the next sort of questions because it goes to what I think both governments are now pinning their hopes on to spur bilateral trade and investment flows. And that's the Indonesia-Australia Comprehensive Economic Partnership Agreement, or ISEPA. And there's a lot of comprehensive partnership rhetoric in all of this. And as the CSP's plan of action proclaims, the ISEPA will be, quote, the centrepiece of our economic relationship, drive closer collaboration through the economic powerhouse model, and enable greater trade and investment. Now, Nicola, I'm not sure I know what the economic powerhouse model is, but in any case, what does the ISEPA bring to the table here? Uh, how will it achieve these goals of greater trade and investment and, and drive closer collaboration? Well, I think if we go back to the beginning of Jokowi's term, and if I think, Pakacho, about some of the papers that you wrote in those early days about the need to change policy... Uh, both at the Indonesia side and the Australian side, it was actually quite a negative period of, of relationship between the two. Um, and, and, I mean, Pakacho is just the expert on this and no doubt you'll speak about what it was like at that time. I think the pa your paper was bad times and bad policy. Or, and it was right. That was the rhetoric at the time. And so if we go sort of at the beginning of Jokowi's leadership in sort of partway through that first term, he came into Australia um, and he really 
I suppose, open the door for an improvement in uh, the relationship and, and, the, and the trade flows. And, and, and this is 2016, I think, he said that this, the IACPA, uh, or what it was then sort of referred to, was his number one priority and in improving the, the trade between Australia and Indonesia. If you think about the rhetoric at that time, a couple of years after some of the criticisms um, of the relationship, um, there was a lot of discussion um, with the Australian people, actually, to bring the politics to support the economic development, uh, because, again, the politics didn't necessarily support that sort of engagement. And so you had Jokowi, you know, standing in front of a huge crowd in, in Sydney uh, talking about, uh, you know, let, let's not talk about politics. I remember he said, he said, um, you know, it gives me a headache. <laughs> he said, let's talk about economics. That's where we can be aligned. That's where we can help each other. And, and I think that was a really fundamental moment, actually, for how the governments, the previous uh, numbers of governance and Indonesia worked towards a improved position on economic trade. And, and, and as you say, David, in your opening comments, then that there is sort of so little trade that neither are the top 10 partners. So uh, if we sort of move ahead to the signing of IACPA, you see a number of things. One is Australian export of sugar. That's really a focus. Um, two is, is the wheat. And we know that's a major issue at the moment with the Ukraine for Indonesia. And, and that's really the main reason I'm sure that Jokowi went and spent the time uh, in Ukraine and is very focused on improving relations uh, with the war. It's about wheat imports for Indonesia. So Australia's got a place to play to fit in that. And that's certainly a lot easier now following IACPA. You've got things like pesticides and herbicides that are produced in Indonesia that we really need in Australia which has opened up in terms of um, tariffs, which were previously relatively high. So, you know, there are a few examples of flows either side. I mean, another one would be even vehicles that are produced high-end manufacturing that we're seeing now in Indonesia, particularly electric vehicles, is, is something that we're now seeing in the context of the climate discussion between Australia and Indonesia. So I think there are real examples of opportunities for people to make the best of IACPA. Uh, and we're seeing that flow already. Acho, how do you respond to, to what um, Nicola's just said? How do you see the IASEPA and, and to what extent do you share Nicola's thoughts on it? Well, I, I agree. I mean, IASEPA, I think, has great potential, but so long as it is not confined only to serve bilateral give and take between Australia and, and Indonesia, right? If, if that happens, it's just like traditional FTA where two countries, you know, uh, export and import in terms of uh, give and take while not looking at third market or third region. Uh, but I think ISAPA being comprehensive economic partnership agreement, not just traditional FTA, has some potential. And you mentioned about powerhouse, for example. I see it as a tool to join force join forces between Australia and Indonesia, integrating to the wider global supply chain, right? Uh, and to do this, I think we need to explore and exploit, again, complementarities. So going further down aggregation level, for example, uh, looking at branches of food and beverages, uh, EV battery, uh, and so forth. 
course, there are some impediments to tackle. For example, the uh, the existing uh, NTM or non-tariff uh, measures. Uh, this is, I think, is addressed in ISEPA chapter three, for example, right? And Indonesians uh, need to also note that they have bigger challenge uh, challenges here because they have more what we call non-conforming measures. Uh, so uh, uh, measures that probably can hinder uh, trade flows, investment flows between the two countries. But having said that, uh, Nicola also mentioned about the policy of uh, Pak Jokowi. And I think there are some good uh, signs. For example, the omnibus law on creation. Uh, basically, it actually uh, uh, it is looking at how to improve the environment for trade and investment, right? Of course, there are some caveats to that to that law, as we know, but mostly it deals with how to make the investment uh, climate good, uh, uh, also the, the trade uh, environment between the two countries. And I think this will fit in towards the application and implementation of ISEPA, so we can maximize the benefits of, of having this agreement. Um, Someone of what is sort of detailed in the Comprehensive Strategic Partnerships Plan of Action acknowledges that many arrangements for trade are already in place, and it's really just a case of implementing them. Um, but other parts talk about uh, encouraging sustained interactions among relevant stakeholders to identify and eliminate trade barriers, enhancing bilateral trade cooperation through measures such as trade facilitation and promoting transparency in non-tariff barriers and so on. Now, these parts sort of imply that there remain a lot of barriers and factors inhibiting free trade that um, we know have been sustained for various reasons. Pacho, what's really to be done to narrow the gap between aspiration and the reality here? Um, how significant are such barriers? And to what degree are these factors still set to inhibit the objectives of the two governments? Well, unfortunately, there is still this ambivalence uh, in, in, in the government way of looking at this uh, threat and investment, right? On the one hand, we mentioned already about the omnibus law, which is uh, if everything is progressing, I think it's really good for uh, trade and investment in the future. But on the other hand, we still see this tendency towards more and more protectionism and, and, and both countries, right? in both countries. In Indonesia, uh, we hear a lot about this uh, domestic value-added policy, so how to increase uh, domestic value-added, total domestic value-added, right? So I think that can run counter to this other objective, namely to penetrate the global value chains. How? Because if we only think about increasing the total value, the, the per unit value added, so per value added for each and every single good that we uh, produce, that actually is not parallel towards the objective of increasing uh, the job creation, for example. Why? Because in this era of production network, global supply chain, naturally value added should come from everywhere, right? And that's the gist of slicing the value chain, so slicing the, the, the production uh, part. So everyone has a task on it. So it's uh, quite uh, interesting to see usually policymakers has these two objectives. Uh, together while they are actually contradicting each other, right? One, to engage in global value chains, which I agree completely it, it, it is the time now. Second, 
to increase per unit value added. If you want to increase value added, you should see this as a total value added, which means the value added times the job that you create, right? That's what China do. That's what uh, Vietnam does also, right? So we want to have increased engagement in production network. That means we also create jobs domestically, but at the same time, we contribute to the production network in the region and also globally, right? And this is where I think Indonesia and Australia can cooperate. And that is back to the uh, powerhouse concept that we 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 mentioned earlier. And that means how to strengthen linkages in complementary industries with the aim to target the global value chains. I might add a lot of that value add uh, and that complementarity from the Australian side uh, comes from the education sector and comes from the skilling uh, and, and the conversation on skilling between Australia and Indonesia that's been taking place in, in recent years. Uh, at, you know, you see Monash University is setting up, we're looking at two um, options for where they might set up a campus there. Uh, and it's a really important uh, connection and value add, as Pakachal says, between the two countries. If you think about, you know, senior officials uh, within governments, um, in cabinets in Indonesia, many of them went to university in Australia. Many of them have a real connection to Australia through their own education. So, so that skilling piece is absolutely key on the Indonesian side and, and also on the export side uh, for Australia. The other thing I just wanted to mention is also healthcare. It feels to me like that is a real complementarity. And, and you're seeing companies like um, Aspen Pharmaceutical in Australia looking at really quite a massive investment in hospitals and clinics um, across Indonesia, and we're talking about sort of two decades type of vision, so it's, it will take its time to uh, to roll out. But, but you know, you've, you've got histories of, of Ramsey and Simon Darby coming together in the region as well and, you know, bringing some of that Australian tech and know-how into Indonesia and Malaysia. So I think that's another place where the complementarity clearly exists and, and it's already started to move in that direction, both in terms of trade and, in, and investment. On that, where does the non-university tertiary sector in that picture fit in? I mean, when I was up there last time, there was a lot of talk about TAFE and introducing TAFE models to Indonesia and, and, and helping Indonesia build its skills in that area at a time when, of course, Indonesia is seeking to go down much more the path of secondary manufacturing and so on and so forth. Where does that fit in? It always seemed to be something that was both necessary but really hard to achieve? I think partly that has been the regulatory structure in Indonesia. It's very hard to uh, structure foreign investment into the education sector. Um, anything sort of below tertiary um, has historically been really difficult to, to achieve. So if there was to be a discussion around non-K-12, non at tertiary education, um, that would be, I think, actually a very good idea, David. Um, but I don't think that that discussion has been had in any detail. And certainly I haven't seen the appetite from foreign investors to engage in that place because they tend to be focused on, you know, that level of tertiary education as opposed to a TAFE-type structure. But I, I actually totally agree with you that it's a gap and it would make sense given that it is open as long as it's not within the school curriculum, um, it would be open to foreigners to bring their expertise and, and bring their investment. 
Yeah, I think there is a room for creativity in the policy also in the, in this regard. And what I mean by that, I think when it comes to vocational uh, training, for example, I think who knows best here is the private sectors themselves, right? Because they know what kind of human resources they actually need. So I think the government, uh, especially in Indonesia, because I know this, that Jokowi is very uh, keen on having uh, on improving the educational training uh, sectors, I think there is a way to do this in collaboration with the private sectors, whereby the government provide incentives for private sectors who can actually create training, in-house training for their own uh, uh, employees. I think this is much more effective rather than creating more and more training centers, uh, you know, supported and facilitated by the government. But it, in the end of the day, it's the private sectors themselves who knows what they need, right? So I think there is a room for creative policy in this regard. Well, the priority, it seems, of the Jacobi government has undoubtedly been high growth and rapid development. And the principal way of achieving this, the government seems to be banking on, is by attracting FDI and development financing for infrastructure primarily. Now, for its part, the Albanese government has supported a delegation of Australian superannuation fund recently to Indonesia to explore opportunities in this in other ways. So, Pagacho, what's been the effect of all this in terms of FDI flows into Indonesia? Where is the bulk of that FDI coming from and where does Australia fit into this? Yeah, again, investment is even uh, smaller than trade flows, right? It's less than 2% uh, bilaterally. Uh, and so far, if you look at the data, uh, the major investment from Australia to Indonesia are still in the traditional sectors, uh, namely mining, uh, chemical and pharmaceutical, food crops, uh, livestock, uh, while uh, Indonesians' investment in Australia is almost negligible. You cannot really find in the report because it's too small. But having said that, I think there are some potentials. And again, if you go back to ISEPA, I think it's it's a good agreement because, for example, it has a good chapter on ISDS. So that's uh, investor state dispute uh, settlement, uh, which is uh, really needed uh, for, for investment climate. And also, uh, I think uh, they aim for increase in ownership levels. This is also frequently cited by investors, uh, Australian investors in Indonesia, about the, the problem of allowed ownership uh, level. I think they they, they are increasing it uh, through ISEPA. For example, now uh, you can have 100% ownership for a five-star hotel uh, and resorts in Indonesia, uh, 95% for uh, uh, power plants, for example, and some others for other types of, of infrastructure. But I think uh, the way to look at this, we have to use a big picture in, in, in the sense that we have to look at both threat and investment because often in Indonesia, for example, there is this uh, uh, one-sidedness in looking at trade only without linking it to the investment. But we know from balance of payment, right, that there are really two sides of the same coin. If you export more, that means you actually have a capital outflow. So I think the in the future, we need to allow possibility for Indonesians to also have some ownership in Australian uh, land, for example, if you talk about live cattle, for example, right? If they have ownership in Australia, now the populist uh, call in Indonesia not to have 
to increase import from other countries, I think will reduce because they know, they understand that part of these imported goods actually owned by Indonesian as well. That's what Malaysia does with, with Indonesian palm oil. So this type of you know, trade and investment link need, need to be understood by, by both Indonesians and Australians. I'd like to come back to that point about Indonesian investment in Australia. But first, Nicola, you're an advocate for investment opportunities in Indonesia. So to what extent is the Australian business community now incentivized either by reforms in Indonesia like the omnibus? Is that all sufficient or in other factors? Are they also needed uh, if Indonesia is going to attract more Australian investment? It is needed. A lot is needed. Uh, look, if I come back to the Australian government delegation to Indonesia a couple of months ago, uh, DFAT asked me to be involved in, in the effort there and to um, talk about what we'd seen other investors do in terms of their investment in Indonesia. How do they manage risk? How do they manage deal execution? What sectors are they focused on and why? Um, it was, I think, very important step forward in that, that education process and that understanding from Australian business. Um, but it's almost like it's not even Australian business, it's above Australian business. It's at the superannuation fund level and, and actually superannuation funds, they are the institutional investors in all of the listed companies. They're, they're the investors in all of the funds. Uh, they need to support Australia's investment into Indonesia and the rest of Asia in order for business to thrive and to and to progress um, the, the, the investment relationship. Um, so it was very important uh, what this government has done. And, and I don't think that it was an invitation. It was a request, or it was a perhaps a requirement, uh, that CEOs and CIOs of these super funds and some of the major fund managers like Macquarie Infrastructure and IFM, that they be there and that they really invest the time. I mean, we're talking two and a half days in Jakarta and a third full day in Singapore talking about uh, investment flows and opportunities for, for, for investment together. And, and Indonesia has set up a sovereign wealth fund now uh, called INA. And, and that sovereign wealth fund has co-invested with, for example, the Canadian pension funds to invest in roads. You know, there's talk about green structures. Uh, there's, there's talk about airports uh, and, and digital infrastructure is also um, likely to be put into that same bucket. So I think the Australians can learn a lot from what the Canadian pension funds have done in terms of their investment flows in Indonesia uh, and the conversation needs to continue. Okay. Barcho, you mentioned earlier about Indonesian investment interest in Australia, which is really low, frankly, very low. What can be done to elevate that or is it just a pipe dream to expect that that can rise? Yeah, um, I don't know if I have the answer to that, uh, David, but uh, I think we need to look at new opportunities, right? And uh, when we talk about global supply chains, for example, uh, recently this GPC is uh, moving further towards upstream, meaning even when we talk about resources, and as I said, Australia and Indonesia have similar similarity in terms of relying on resources, right? And, but that does not mean we cannot trade forever, right? But because if we go further down, actually there are, there are complementarities. And 
to give an example is EV battery, right? Indonesia is very rich in nickel. They don't have lithium, but Australia does. And these two components are really needed for EV battery. So then why not invite another investor from other countries, for example, you know, Tesla or others, and then join forces in this global uh, supply chains whereby we, we, we work together, right? And, and not just that, I think uh, the other emerging opportunity is energy transition, right? We talk about, uh, you know, Australians sending energy to Singapore with uh, sun cables, for example, but of course it will go through Indonesian water. And how do we collaborate on this? Uh, of course, Indonesia can also contribute in terms of workers, for example, or in terms of producing parts and components for that cable uh, technology, for example. And in this regard also, I think Indonesia can learn from Australia in terms of solar panel technology. Uh, Australia is number one now. Uh, uh, there is this, uh, oh, what's the name of the company? SunDrive. Uh, who uh, that is successful in replacing the silver part, silver part of the solar panel with copper, and hence uh, more affordable, but also more efficient in converting the light into electricity. Uh, so Indonesia can learn that. And then the third one is uh, SunTech, right? SunTech is actually uh, founded by Chinese Australian who studied at UNSW, but then because of the problem of finding large scale of workers in Australia, he needed to go back to China to produce large scale solar panels, right? What we learned from this is that if Australia can open up its economy for workers from Indonesia, for example, to work in this area, that's another uh, room for collaboration in terms of energy transition. So there, there are some, some, some emerging opportunities that we can uh, capitalize on this uh, collaboration uh, also through ISEPA. So both the Comprehensive Strategic Partnership and ISEPA were really designed with a long-term aspiration to deepen economic integration and sort of bolster the strategic partnership uh, between Australia and Indonesia. But do you think economic ties can help sustain a partnership that is truly strategic in a broader sense of the term. Bajo. Uh, yeah, I, I'm still quite optimistic, especially if you are to focus on emerging new opportunities. Again, if it involves more complementarity between these two countries, right? And this includes the co-penetration uh, to the regional and uh, global supply chains, and of course, bilateral cooperation in new areas like you know, energy transition. But beyond that, I think if we try to use this improvement in trade and investment, I think it can grow to other sectors as well. And again, if we go back to the examples of uh, ISAP, I understand during its years of preparation, I think uh, they had been focusing on uh, sectors like uh, advanced manufacturing, uh, grain partnership, etc. But uh, we should not forget that services sectors are also very promising, right? And this includes education and training, uh, like uh, Nicola said, and also health, aged care, and again, resources and energy services, not just the good, but the services. Look, I don't think we will see significant investment from Indonesia into Australia anytime soon. I think the 
uh, Indonesian government is focused on bringing investment into infrastructure into Indonesia. Where we will see partnerships are on those matters that Pakacho has mentioned in terms of energy transition, EV batteries, subsea cable. I think it'll be pretty much limited to that. It'll be partnerships where both Australia and Indonesia are engaging together for broader regional uh, economic reasons, um, as opposed to a bilateral investment by Indonesia into Australia. I think it won't happen. And I, I don't think Indonesia has the focus on uh, external investments beyond um, its own, you know, its own infrastructure needs. So I, I think the opportunity is more Australian investment into Indonesia and for Australia to, I suppose, um, benefit from incredible economic growth that we're likely to see for Indonesia, um, shift in demographics, shift in infrastructure growth, uh, which you know many other global investors are focusing on and that's why we're seeing these investment flows um, Indonesia, into Indonesia now. So I suspect it'll be more of a one-way street on that front. Just on uh, current investment flows, one thing is quite noteworthy, but I, I'm sometimes confused by the stats or information base, and that is where a lot of the foreign investment is now coming from into Indonesia. A lot of talk about Chinese investment and particularly development financing, whether it's for infrastructure or it's for industries like smelting and so on. Um, to what extent is, is the investment patterns at the moment directed largely from the north and particularly from, from China? Uh, and what is what is there to be done, if that is the case, to reshape things? Is, is the ISF a part of that deal? There is significant investment from China in, in into Indonesia. There's a very recent um, hydro plant uh, that will be mainly funded by uh, Chinese investment. There has also been significant investment over many years from Japan. You know, you you look particularly in the coal uh, in the gold and copper. Sector historically, um, groups like Sumitomo spent many, many years investing in understanding the mining market in Indonesia, including having many people on the ground. And where else is it coming from? Um, there's very recent uh, investment from uh, America, as you would expect, uh, American uh, aid money as well as uh, pension uh, and endowment money starting to flow in Indonesia. That's relatively recent. Uh, probably somewhat geopolitical, but also, you know, it looks like a good investment. Um, so do I think that IACPA is going to be sort of the golden ticket for investment from Australia? I don't think it's that's what will cause the investment. I think um, it will be economics and it will be the Australian supers and Australian business recognising the growth of the Indonesian market and recognising the opportunity for return. And that that will drive investment flows a lot more than government policy, uh, although uh, making it easier for people to invest in a particular country makes all the difference. So I'd say that the omnibus law in Indonesia is probably more important in terms of investment flows as opposed to trade flows uh, by making uh, most sectors open to foreign investments and making investment structures a lot less complicated than it was in the past. Australians and, and what the Australian supers um, have said openly and publicly is that they want deal security. They want deal sort of certainty. 
and they don't want to do deals in developing countries where they can't be sure of the outcome. And, and you know, you can spend two years developing a relationship, say, with Ina or with a, a local partner somewhere in this region uh, and then not end up achieving a deal. It's a huge investment of time and people and money. So, that, that, so making deals easier to execute in Indonesia is the, the game changer in, in, in investment. But it won't be fast. I think it will take, it'll take more time and more um, education on the Australian side before we see significant flows from Australia and into, into Indonesia. Excellent. Well, thanks so much, uh, Nicola and Pacho, for uh, coming here and having this discussion with us to talk about the impact dimensions of the CSB. Um, it's good to someone in an optimistic note. Thanks again for coming. And thanks to everyone for listening to us. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon.